0: Good morning, church. I'm excited this morning. I know it's kind of hard to tell whether I'm excited or not from time to time. Walk into the auditorium and see the decorations for Christmas, the poinsettias decorating the platform, seeing the Advent candles. And for preachers, we're we're a little nerdish in that regard, at least... I am. I'm not, I'll speak for everyone else since they can't speak for themselves. I'll put words in their mouth even if they don't agree with me. But um, I'm a little nerdish when it comes to worship services. I, I, I love to see preparation and plan come together. And uh, for those of you, we have some young ladies who have recently been married over the last year or so and you know what it's like to plan your dress and the uh, the wedding uh, and all the you know the reception all of these details and uh, you you see how that is, goes along and some of you men you may uh, be uh, landscapers or gardeners and uh, you plan everything else in the spring and you have some anticipation about how that's going to look and uh, you can't wait to see how that's going to be fulfilled and uh, or you may be you know working with wood or something like that and you have a plan in your mind how this is going to look and you you, you design it uh, you start constructing it and you have this idea in mind or maybe you're just thinking about a holiday meal that your family is going to be enjoying in a few weeks or maybe you think back on Thanksgiving and about how you're going to do this and you're going to fix that and and you're going to fix uncle so-and-so's favorite dish or you're going to uh, make sure that we do this right on time so that we you know are able to let the kids go out and play if it's sunny and you you have in your mind this thing that you want to see fulfilled and for a preacher it's sort of the same way when it comes to a worship service you think about the music that's been selected and particularly when someone else is selecting music while you're preparing a message and you have different things just sort of fall into place and I don't know about you but over on the third pew over here I have been really enjoying this service because I have been anticipating how the Scripture would be read and I and I trusted the Holy Spirit as I have been praying intensely and God knows that I have been praying for you all. That during this service, that as the message is being preached, that the Spirit would bring back to your mind a portion of Scripture that we were alluding to in the the scripture reading at the beginning or maybe that that word Redeemer when Leanna was singing during the offertory or or maybe as Amazing Grace was being sang after we had just had a time of confession. And now we come to the portion where we actually look at a specific passage of scripture that I hope has kind of been funneling all of this down into one part of our life. And if I think that way, I can only imagine what Isaiah was thinking in his life. You see, if you haven't noticed, we're getting really close to the end. And for a Baptist preacher to say anything about getting close to the end, I know that means absolutely nothing. Because you think it's like, well, yeah, it's close to 12, but that doesn't matter. But when we think about getting close to the end of the book of Isaiah, can you imagine the decades that Isaiah has been preaching to a Stiff, hard-necked people who were living yet in the midst of their sin, not having yet been exiled to a foreign nation, and yet giving them a word of promise and a word of hope that there would be a Redeemer coming one day that would deliver them not simply from a land in which they were in bondage, or away from home but a hope that would provide for them a redeemer from their sin because I've listened to Tim's messages over this glorious not yet and I don't know if that's yours or if you got that from I love that phrase the glorious not yet it's another word for hope when Richard was preaching a few weeks ago about the wedding thinking about We, the bride, one day being joined with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. That's exciting. Because I look around in the world in which I live and I need so much more than what this world can give me. I need so much more than what I can make of myself. And when we come to the Christmas season and we think about Jesus Christ coming the first time and we anticipate him coming the second time, That should give us hope. Now there's a close connection between the hope that God gave his people Israel and the work that God had done for them earlier. As we read earlier in in the service, in in verse 8 of chapter 63, he said, Surely they are my people, for sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their Savior. That's significant. He became their Savior. He didn't become their friend, though there is an aspect where He is. He didn't become their guide, even though there is an aspect in which He is. He didn't even come to tell them what life was all about, even though He does. He became their Savior. To make all that other stuff significant. He became their Savior. And in verse 14 he goes on, So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So lest we get confused into thinking that he became our Savior to make us great, let's always keep in mind that he became our Savior to make his name known. Because he is great. However, their land is about to be ravaged. Speaking now of the direct audience of Isaiah. Their exile is soon to come. In other words, it's not looking like the brochure of a new heaven and a new earth. It's not looking like, hey, the promised land's coming. It's about to get really bad. Kind of reminds me, our family has a friend who uh, years ago built a house back in the 80s and uh, over the years uh, the the city of Greensboro and I guess the state of North Carolina decided they want to make a loop, a highway loop around Greensboro Uh, and his house was sitting not directly where the highway is now but it was close enough to the right of way where they were, you know, offering people wonderful amounts of money for their home and uh, so he had to move. And his son had the great thought that, you know what, I love this house that I grew up in, so let's just move this house to a location that's far away, number one, from the highway, but also closer to where we've actually got some property. Uh, And so they went into this ordeal of trying to move this house. Wonderful house. Beautiful house. The only problem was in order for them to move it, they had to cut off the, the top four feet of the house. Now you might be thinking, like, am. now wait, isn't there some structural stuff somewhere between the top of the house and four feet underneath it? But they were convinced that, hey, we can put that back together, just a few nails, some screws, a couple of boards, you know, we can, hey, you'll never know the difference. Today, you can go down that road where it sits, empty, roof still detached. Everything else is completely ruined. It didn't quite turn out the way they thought it was going to. And during this Christmas season and throughout the rest of the seasons of our life, this world will offer us a deal that sounds really good because somehow we can take what we used to have and we think that we can somehow manage it in such a way that it's going to provide us something worth living in for the rest of our life. And we are sadly mistaken... It's not going to turn out the way you want it to. And the longer we place our hope in things that are not of Christ, that are not of God, that are not of biblical importance, the longer we place our hope in that, the longer we're going to let that house sit on that piece of property being ruined and wasted. Well, all along, we could have simply dedicated ourselves to something brand new. You say, wow, how are we getting that from Isaiah 63 and 64? Let us hope we will find out, right? Because during this season, if ever, we need to be aware of the hope that is offered in the coming of Jesus Christ. They have to kind of keep in mind as we go through this passage today that, you, that, that what God has done and what. Uh, and, and, I'm sorry. We have to keep in mind the work that God has done when waiting for the work that he said he would do. That's the reason why we incorporated some verses from chapter 63 because as Isaiah says, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord. We'll remember that as we consider our need for his coming. God creates, I believe in us, a need for communication with him, a a relationship with him, some dialogue. Now, whether you do that verbally, whether you do that spiritually within your heart and in your mind, there is to be some sort of dependency upon him. And he often will use, as Richard pointed out in the Christian growth group today, ironic things to do so. We think that if we make people happy with us, that they'll want a relationship with us may or may not happen depending on how long that you can give them what they want but if we can somehow create a dependence for example like children upon their parents not that you forsake trying to be friendly to them not that you don't want to be kind and and helpful to but if you create a dependence upon them then they will learn how to value that relationship god works the same thing out in our lives i believe and this season will help us understand it. There's, there's, there's four things I'd like for us to consider because while you may have a, a heading in your Bible, if you've, got a, if, if you've got the printed form, you know, this is the real original stuff. Uh, if you've got this, you may have a heading. Now, if you've got one where you had to turn it on, it may not have a heading. But then again, it may, depending on how advanced your app is. Uh, but anyway, but it may say something like, this is a prayer of repentance. And while there is repentance here, I believe this prayer is much more than that. And as we look and see what is actually here in verse 15 of chapter 63 all the way through chapter 64, four things I I think that we need to keep in mind, and hopefully it won't be simply because Pastor Mark thinks these are great ideas, but because we actually see them in the text. And they will help us as we make application later. The first thing that we need to consider is to recognize God's sovereignty over the course of our history. Again, as our Christian group group lessons are leading us towards the verse that Richard, again, brought up in our lesson, is that what you meant for evil, God intended for good. Now, how can he do that? Because he's sovereign. He's in control. God is not just really good at getting a last-minute situation and say, you know what, I think I can figure this out. God I, is not even somebody who says, you know, I've got three options. I bet of all the things that could happen in your life, I've got three ways I'm going to deal with it. And then when it happens, I'm going to kind of, you know, apply whichever one I think is best. No. God's sovereign over the, the whole history, God's sovereign over all of your life. And so we need to recognize that as we go through this passage of Scripture. The second thing we need to do is value the benefit of His promise. That is his inheritance, his reward, his promise. We need to value the benefit of it. It's not just a matter of acknowledging that there is a promise. It's not just a matter of saying the promise is real and it's going to apply to somebody. But we need to be able to place in our own selves a value on that to the point where it's better than anything else I can imagine. The third thing, it gets harder, is we need to acknowledge our guilt. The reason why we have despair in this world is because of sin. I realize that that is not politically correct today. I realize that that goes against a lot of the psycho babble that you might have heard on a television program, maybe read in a a really good self help book. But if we're going to make it through this life with hope and be able to enjoy it, we need to be able to acknowledge our sin. And then the last thing is to yearn for the fulfillment of his promise. Not only do we, in number two, value it, but we yearn for the fulfillment. We can't wait for it. It's not that, well, it's going to happen, I'm going to enjoy it when it gets here, but no, I want it to happen today. That's how much I I value it, because I want it to happen right now. There's nothing more important. There's nothing that I'm going to miss out on any better than what Jesus Christ has promised me. So let's consider this as we look in verse 15 of chapter 63. Now again, this is after Isaiah has already remembered how good God has been through the history of Israel. And even when they were messing up, God remembered how he was faithful and how he was going to save them. And now we come to, in verse 15, Isaiah saying, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. where your zeal and your might. Again, he's talking to God. The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. we become like those who, over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Notice, to begin with, have you considered the remarkable difference between the throne room of heaven in the world in which we live. Have you ever stopped just to notice the difference? Now again, we can't only know so much because the Bible only reveals so many things about what heaven is like. But can you imagine what heaven's like? Can you imagine what it would be like to be in the presence of God's throne? We can get a glimpse from that Revelation chapter 5, right? We can, we can hear the voices call out in praising the name of our God. We get sort of a glimpse, but have you ever considered how different that is from the world in which we're living today? I think that's what Isaiah has in mind when he says, Lord, look down from heaven and see. Now, Isaiah understands that he doesn't need to remind God that there's a difference and that God needs to look around and say, well, you know, it's a lot better up here and watch y'all got it down there. <clears throat> But I believe what Isaiah is doing like he does so often throughout this book is he will allude back to the children of Israel in their days in the wilderness and even beyond that to where when we look in Exodus in which God heard the cries of his people in Egypt. He heard them. He understood their situation. And what did he do in response? Well, he turned a Pharaoh's kingdom upside down and getting his people out. So Isaiah is now saying, God, I know you've got a wonderful place up there in heaven, but would you look down from your beautiful habitation where everything is completely perfect? Would you look down and look at our life? Would you look at our world? That would help our prayer life, I believe, quite a bit if we could understand that there is a huge gap. And that we have something much better to long for than we have in this world. And God does use the natural inclinations of our hearts to accomplish his purposes. And Isaiah is familiar with this. If you remember back in Isaiah chapter 6 when he was called, when, there was a, when he was seeing in a vision the Lord, and he said, who will go? And, and Isaiah, hey, here I am. See me? And God says, okay. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Make their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Remember that was his commissioning. Now hopefully the commissioning of Matt and Ramon this morning wasn't quite so dreary. Okay guys, you're going to work yourselves to death but you're not going to accomplish anything. That was pretty much what God told Isaiah. He says, go to these people, and when you preach to them, when you tell them what I've said, make their ears where they don't want to hear. Clog them up. Make it where they can't see the truth. Because God was going to, just like he did Pharaoh's heart, use his natural inclination to sin and reject God for his purpose. So it means a judgment, if you will. We're going to say, okay, if you disobey me, I told you what would happen. And here you go. I'm going to preach. You're going to get the truth. But you're not going to understand it. It's not going to make a difference in your life. Because your hearts are going to be hardened. So when I... There we go. I like that. Getting excited. See, I told you I was excited. <laughs> but, so when Isaiah says, Why do you make us wonder from the ways and harden our heart and uh, that we don't fear you? Well, Isaiah understands exactly why. Because it's part of his calling. But then just in the same way that John the Baptist, when he was in prison for being the forerunner of Jesus Christ, he knew who, he he told the people, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Follow after him now. He got to a point in his life where he told his disciples, can you go and tell, just make real sure that that's who he is. There's times in which we know the truth but we verbalize it before God in our prayers so that we acknowledge our humility and our, and our inability to understand what God may be up to. But as they understood why they were wondering. He understood why their hearts were hard because God intended for that to happen. But he asked for him to return for the sake of his servants. Their condition, however this is good stuff. The condition did not suppress their redemption, by the way. Because what does Isaiah call back on? He says, even though Abraham wouldn't recognize us as his people, even though Israel, not Jacob, but Israel wouldn't recognize us as his people, from way back, you're our redeemer. That's who you are. And that's our only hope. If we have a time of confessionary prayer in our worship service and all we can do is say, well, you know what? This past week, Lord, I've lived in a way that people wouldn't even recognize me as a Christian. Oh, well. No. We go and we plead the blood of Jesus Christ knowing that if we would confess our sins with our mouth, we will be forgiven. We will be cleansed of all unrighteousness because we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's his name. That's who we hope in, right? And that's who Isaiah was hoping in. For the Lord was their father from of old, indicating also that it wasn't their selection of him, but being reminded that you're the one who saved us. You're the one who called us out by your name. You're the one who drove Abram from his father's house and promised to him A people, a land, a blessing. And we're your people, God. Return for the sake of your servants, for the tribes of your heritage. And the cry extended to a plea to return, not because he abandoned them, but because they're dependent on him to restore them from being like any other nation. Isn't that sad? Thank you, Courtney, for leading us in such a way as we pray. We live in such a way we're no different than the ones who are without Christ in our sin, in our rebellion. Come to chapter 64, verse 1 in the Hebrew Scriptures. This is actually part of the same section. There's no chapter division. And rightfully so, because we can certainly see a flow of what's going on here. For Isaiah continues in verse 1 of chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name uh, known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. See that connection? Lord, return. But we also, would you just let the heavens open and come down. Now again, Isaiah is referring back to what? He's referring back centuries ago to Mount Sinai when Moses was on top of the mountain receiving the Word of God. And what happened? When God broke through and was revealing Himself and revealing His Word to Moses, the mountain quaked. It scared the people. They didn't even want to get close. And rightfully so, because they would have perished. And Isaiah is asking God to come down as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil. In other words, there's an effect to this fire. It's not just simply, oh boy, that's a pretty fire in the fireplace, it's Christmas time. And so we can kind of sit and you know, huddle around and, and you know, melt marshmallows on graham crackers and stuff. No, this is a fire that's active just like when the brush, when the, when the dry branches burn up. They don't go, no, when it hits the dryness, it's like, when water's boiling, it's just, uh, hey, it's ready to cook something in here. But the more the fire rumbles, it it just makes a noise, right? It rumbles. It's active. And Isaiah is asking God to, to rip open the heavens and come down and take action. So that the nations around will know who you are, brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a day. <laughs> there is coming a day when the heavens will be split wide open, and the nations will know who Jesus is. But not yet. to wait for that. Verse eight. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. I haven't finished verse 5 yet. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. Again, what happened the last time when the mountain quaked when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments and God was rendering the heavens so that he could come to? Well, the people sinned. And our sins, we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. It's kind of interesting, I think, that as he was talking about this fire, that he talks about a third consequence of what happens when fire hits and it melts. There's some things here that are not comfortable to talk about, but things that we need to be very clear about. Sin is ugly. Sin is unclean, whether it be ethically, whether it be ceremonially, however you want to think about it, sin is dirty. We serve a pure, righteous, holy God who is without any dirt. We're di- We're dirty. We're unclean. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In a mixed company, it's not even appropriate for us to even discuss exactly what this is about. It's filthy. We fade like a leaf. As beautiful as the foliage is in the fall, It's dead. The colors are wonderful. We hope everything works out to the point where it's easy and nice to go up in the mountains and see a bunch of different colors. But you know what? When a leaf fades, it's no life in it. It's dry. And like the wind blown by iniquity, this is not speaking simply of our sin, but as the wind blows us along This is talking about the consequences that take place as we're just blown along with our iniquities. It carries us to where we don't want to go. Sometimes the consequences of our sin are subtle. Sometimes in our personal sin, there may be just very discreet notices even in our own selves of of understanding, you know what, listen, I made a bad choice and I'm paying the price for it right now. I I got it, but nobody else knows. And then there's some sins that are public. And the consequences are very tragic and very hurtful to not just a person who has sinned, but to people around them, people that they love. Sin's ugly. But of all these things, verse 7 says, there's no one who calls upon your name. There's nothing worse than that. acknowledging God in Isaiah comes to a point where in the midst of all this anticipation and hope and asking the Lord to split and rend the heavens and come down he can't go far without recognizing I'm a sinner You can't truly serve the one and living God without at the same time acknowledging the fact that you are worthless apart from Him and that you are sinful and an enemy of His without the reconciliation that's brought through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. But in verse 8, Isaiah turns it says, "But now, O Lord, you are our Father now we're sinful, we've been in sin for a long time, but you are our father and notice he returns back to the illustration he used back in Isaiah chapter twenty nine in which uh, he says, If you turn things upside down, shall the potter be regarded as clay, can the thing made say of its maker, he did not make me or form the thing or, or the formed or the thing formed, say of him who formed it He has no understanding. He goes back to that illustration of potter, so in verse eight he says we You are the potter and we all the work of your hand. We're sinners. You're God that makes you the potter that makes us the clay. Be not so terribly angry. Be not so terribly angry, Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? Will you afflict us, us so terribly? Please don't. We're clay. Don't be angry with us. Don't, don't be like Mark Andrews would do and take that piece of clay and when it didn't form the way it was supposed to, he just throws it against the wall and says, I'm had it. Don't be so terribly angry. Don't remember our sins forever. We're, we're your clay. You're the potter. So God... Will you restrain yourself at these things? Will you allow our sin to keep you from us? Will you be silent? Will you afflict us so terribly? And certainly our prayer can be, that prayer can be understood. A couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll get the Lord's response to that prayer in chapter 65 before we end our message today because some of you were getting really excited hey man we got through the last verse of chapter 64 it's almost over that was just the introduction almost but I want us to remember one again four things that I wanted us to kind of keep in mind as we went through this passage of scripture first of all recognize God's sovereignty over the course of our history to value the benefit of his promise to acknowledge our guilt To yearn for the fulfillment of His promise. Because there is something meaning for us today. Because while Isaiah was waiting for Christ to come, period, we're waiting for Christ to come again. Which means that when He came the first time, something was accomplished that we can rejoice in as His people today. And that's what I would like for us to think about today as we consider, number one, that there is God's sovereignty over the course of our history. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, Blessed be the Lord Je- uh, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Everyone in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. things in heaven and things on earth in case you missed it that's a sovereign God that I can hope in that I can trust in and know that by His grace I can know Him he describes in chapter 3 Paul does a great provision, a benefit because not only should we be aware that God is sovereign we need to be aware that there's a great provision and in chapter 3 verse 6 of Ephesians this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs that means we get an equal share of the inheritance members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. this gospel doesn't tell me that I'm going to have what I want, this gospel doesn't tell me I'm going to get what I need in this world so much. This gospel is not going to say people are going to like me, this gospel doesn't say I'm going to treat everybody fairly. This gospel doesn't say anything about the political scene in which we're in. It tells me that it's going to what be according to what Christ has given me in the spiritual places in heaven. He gives me life which is much greater than all of those things as wonderful as they are when we see them fulfilled. When we serve other people to try to reach their needs and and meet their the the, the different demands that this world has on, on, on us in this sinful world. But the gospel has given me so much more in Christ Jesus. Because now I'm a partaker. The inheritance is mine. The inheritance is yours. So that when I come and stand behind the pulpit, I don't have to trust in any kind of clever tactics of trying to figure out, well, if I tell this joke, they might really start paying attention. And if I tell another joke, they might kind of continue on. And I might be able to fool them into actually listening to what the Bible says. Or I might actually be able to, you know, come up with something, take somebody else's really good sermon and just read it. I don't have to worry about that because I've been given in Jesus Christ all things that pertain to him spiritually. So, I can enjoy delivering this message knowing that the Holy Spirit is working in your hearts as much as He wants to. And I pray that every single person in this auditorium and everybody who's going to ever maybe waste their time and listen to this message on the podcast will hear what the Holy Spirit is doing through His Word. Understanding that this is a sovereign God that we worship, and understanding that there is a valuable, valuable, Eternal weight of glory. And eternal riches that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, at the same time, understanding that we're a sinner. We're a sinner. Yeah, we often talk about this world in which we live, and even Paul alludes to it in Romans chapter 8. Considering the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Our hope. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage, come, thou long expected Jesus, come and set thy people free. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we are saved. Hope to the scene is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience. Endurance. And as we wait and as John puts it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That means much of our life in this world is going to be a matter of, God, I'm, I'm a sinner. God, I'm impure. God, cleanse me. God, forgive me. God, I confess. God, I repent. God, help me. I'm a sinner. Please help me. There's going to be a continual effort on our part to confess with our mouth our sins so that Jesus Christ can keep cleansing us. We long for the day when we've been there for 10,000 years in which there will be no sin. That's our hope. But until that day, we have to recognize the fact that it's His people we sin. And just as God's people in Isaiah was speaking to, there are consequences for their sin. This past week as we had church conference, and considering what God has done, Cornerstone over the past over 30 years we're still sinners and we still need to acknowledge when we sin and there's ways which I can assure you that in conversations I have with Pastor Charlie and even with the other elders and with others the church I'm grieved I'm grieved. Not in a way where I can say, well, these people are doing okay, but these people aren't doing so good. But when I look as a, as a whole, when I look at a financial statement, and I look at their things that are part of our budget, things that are vital to the existence of the local church. The giving is not sufficient for that. When I think about a prayer meeting, that we come together, usually the fourth Sunday of the month, and we could fill a pew with everyone who's here, I'm grieved. When there's other activities throughout the church, I don't want to, Pastor Charlie shared this with the men on Tuesday night, but I think it's appropriate to to share with everyone. If we were to approach our ministry and church like we did our job, unless you had a union like the one I work with, how long would you be there? Where's the commitment? Not in a way in which you, alrighty, I checked it off the list. Here, I'm doing what you're supposed to do. I'm doing what everybody thinks I should be doing. Yeah, the pastor should be happy now because I'm here, because I give, because I do that, do this. No. Where's the hope that what you do here, it goes way beyond anything else you could do? Now, I'm not all against giving gifts during Christmas season. As a matter of fact, I think it's a great demonstration towards people that you love. But I look in a world, and even in a Christian world, that spends way more time trying to figure out how much we're going to spend and how much we can afford to give to people that we may not even like very much. But when it comes down to taking up an offering in our service, I wonder how oftentimes we really think about, now I really need to make sure we do this when we plan out our week I work 40 plus hours a week I'm a manager I got a home life I got things to do but when I sit down and work out my schedule for the week what is my time that I'm going to be spending at church ministering outside of church where does that fit you see when I If I want to serve a a perfect, righteous God who's holy and sinless, that's going to bring me into an awareness that, you know what, I'm not perfect and sinless and there's sin in my life. And sometimes it's hard sin to acknowledge. It's hard sin to admit. It could be things going on in my personal life that no one else knows about because it's between my ears. Things that I desire, things that I want to be, things that I want to have that are wrong. Got to acknowledge it. And our hope depends on it. Our hope depends on it. So, however, you anticipate. Christmas, or however you anticipate the second coming, however you anticipate the hope of God being fulfilled in your life, you must recognize, number one, that it is a God who has mercifully saved you. That's who He is. And that what He has provided for us is eternally rich, beyond whatever we can imagine. But it requires us to deal with our sin. Sometimes corporately. Most of the time personally. But it's got to be dealt with. And lastly, it's got to cause us to yearn for it. Time will not permit. But if you can recall just quickly in your mind messages given to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, five of those churches had things that while they were doing something good, well, four of the church were doing something good, one church wasn't doing anything good. But they were all commanded to repent. And what do you have at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22? The Lord said he's coming soon. And John writes, huh. come on, come on. We can't do that Until we do, as God called those churches in Asia, just like he's calling our church today, to repent of that which is lacking, that which is wrong, that which is not according to his purpose and his plan. Now, where does that fit in your life? I don't know. That's the Holy Spirit's work in your life. I trust that you'll be sensitive to that. I trust that I will be sensitive to that. But I would encourage you to not place your hope in anything until you have, because... You can't have that hope until you've dealt with your sin.